Good morning. If you have access to a Bible, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we want to continue talking about marriage and singleness as we work our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Obviously, as Christians, God calls us to love, and one of the areas in which he calls us to love is the area of marriage. Um, and I didn't get married until I was 34 years old. Um, I was older in life. Obviously, Jan was much younger, about 19, of course. But, uh, <laughs> but um, we got married, and the question, what about marriage, was something that I thought about a lot after I was graduated from high school and getting married later in life. And it's one of those questions that uh, is an important question for all of us. Everybody has to ask the question, what about marriage? And so 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that, and I want to read the first nine verses of, the, of chapter 7 and then talk a little bit about how this applies to all of us, especially verses 7 through 9. So in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer." And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry." For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of God. Let's pray again. Father, we just pray for your help that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and help help us to see how your word applies to our own lives. Please grant the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to apply it to our lives. And may you be honored and glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, the, the question, what about marriage, is very important. And that's exactly the question that Paul is answering for these Christians in Corinth. Corinth was a city in ancient Greece. Paul had planted this church. And in the first part of this book, he's uh, replying to some reports that he's received about the church and the kinds of difficulties that they're going through. But they had also sent him a list of questions. And this is the first question that he's responding to from the Corinthians. And it's all about marriage in different ways. The believers there seem to have some questions about whether or not it might not, uh, it might be better not to get married uh, in order to be more spiritual, or if you were married, to avoid physical intimacy to be more spiritual. Some might have even thought that it might be good to, to divorce if you've already been married now that you've become a Christian so that you can be more spiritual. And so Paul is answering the question, what about marriage in light of the Christian life? How should we think about it? What should we do in light of that? Um, there are all kinds of questions that are related to the what about marriage question. Uh, should I marry? If so, who should I marry? When? Why? Um, those kinds of things. What if I don't get married and I want to get married? Those are very important questions. And as I said, as I was um, growing up, Getting older, asked that question, what about marriage? I even became a pastor before I got married. And uh, I remember with regard to my first pastorate, little country church in Louisiana, um, someone called me up to ask me to come and preach for them. And there were two questions in the process of becoming the pastor at that church that were asked me that stood out to me. And one question was over the phone, are you a black man? And there are all kinds of reasons for that question, which I don't need to get into. The second question that was asked me was actually during uh, the interview process after I had preached, and it was, are you gay? 
because I was 29 years old, wasn't married. And so they were asking the what about marriage question. What, what do you think about marriage? Where are you? Why aren't you married at this point? It was a little country church, and they were trying to cover all the bases before they called someone to be their pastor that they weren't too sure about. Well, there was a little old lady in that church in her 90s. And she had been married three times when I got there, was on her third husband. And um, she uh, lost that husband while I was there. And uh, I would go and visit her and drink coffee. And she was all about the what about marriage question for me because she would recommend uh, younger ladies in the community for me. And she would say, you know, do you, you know about old so-and-so down the road here? She's not married anymore. And I'd say, but Miss Virgie, she's in her 70s. But Miss Virgie was in her 90s. So that, that was a young girl to her. In her mind, she was young. And when Jan and I got engaged, I was still at that church before I came out here. And I had coffee with Miss Virgie. And Miss Virgie uh, prayed at the end of our time together. And she never prayed after I prayed, but she did this, uh, this time. And she said, uh, Lord, please forgive Brother Earl, for telling me stories. And I asked her, what are you talking about, Miss Virgie? Stories means lies. What do you mean stories? And he said, she basically said, you got engaged to Jan and, and you were committed to me. In her mind, I was going to be husband number four. Miss Virgie was all about marriage. And A lot of us are all about marriage. A lot of us think about marriage in all kinds of ways, for all kinds of reasons. And it's a very, very important question. And so what Paul is dealing with here is important things that all of us need to think about, whether we're married or not. So let me just kind of walk us through verses 7 through 9 very briefly and then make some application for us. Um, In verse 7... He starts off by saying, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. So he's been talking about how those who are married should um, be involved in the physical relationship. They shouldn't give it up to be more spiritual. That God has designed physical intimacy in marriage as a blessing. And so to be more holy, you need to be involved in that appropriately in your marriage. And, And yet Paul could stay... Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And Paul is not married. And so he expresses, first of all, a desire that they were more like him in some respects. The question is, in what way is he talking? He goes on to say in verse 7, However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So he talks about his wish or his desire for them, but he moves on to acknowledge that every man has a different gift. Every man has a gift that God has given them, and not all men have the same gift that he has. Again, he's, he's answering the question, what about marriage? Uh, in one sense, he could say, I kind of wish you were like me with regard to marriage. But everybody has a different gift. And so that's another answer to the question, what about marriage? And then he says in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Again, another what about marriage question. He's talking to the unmarried and to the widows, and he says, you know, it would be a good thing. It would be a positive thing, a helpful thing, uh, if you didn't marry again. Um, And we'll talk a minute about what he's really uh, talking about there and why. And then in verse 9, he talks about um, the if factor again, that it varies depending on what's going on in a person's life. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says the consideration is, where are you with regard to the question of what about marriage in terms of what you're really able to handle uh, when we're talking about this issue of physical intimacy? And so you can see on the PowerPoint here, uh, what I want to highlight today from this passage and talk about in light of what Paul says is some have the gift of marriage. Obviously you're married. If you have that gift, God has given you a spouse. That's what I mean. Some have the gift of celibacy, which is what Paul had. He was not compelled in any way to get married. 
And there was a, in a, a sense in which he desired others to have that same gift. And then the third thing is some have the gift of unanswered prayer. Now, I had a hard time coming up with uh, how to say what I want to say there succinctly, so I have to explain what I mean there. But um, this meme here, um, can anybody relate to that meme? Uh, when I was single, I could really relate to that meme when I really wanted to be married. Uh, the meme says, she held my hand in the prayer circle, so I guess you can say things are getting pretty serious. Um, anybody who's been uh, single for a while and yet wanted, really wanted to be married probably can relate to that on one level or another in terms of wanting to be married and wanting to know if maybe uh, this person or that person might be someone who could fulfill that desire. And so I want to help us think through a little bit what Paul says here because uh, all of us fall into one of these three categories. And I think in talking about it, it will help even those who are already married to think about marriage in, in ways that are biblical and hopefully encouraging. And so, first of all, some have the gift of marriage. Some people are married. There was a retreat that um, for, hus- uh, for uh, pastors and wives. And at one point, they were just having people get up and share uh, testimonies like we did here this morning, uh, blessings in their lives. And there was this young um, pastor's wife who got up and said, you know, the Bible promises that God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And she said, well, I just want to give thanks for my husband because he is one of those no good things. <laughs> Obviously, what she meant was, I have a good thing in my husband even if she expressed it in a way that came across kind of funny. She was basically saying, God has blessed me with the good thing that I had desired and I longed for. And so there's no doubt that marriage can be very hard. And there's no doubt that there are people that are in very difficult marriages. But that does not mean that marriage in itself is a bad thing. Marriage is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. It's a blessing from God. That's why it says, well, in verse 2, earlier Paul says, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. That's the norm. It is normal for people to get married. Most people aren't meant to be single. Most people are meant to be married. It says in Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So to find a wife, to find a husband... It's a blessing. It's a good thing. It's a good gift from God. It's a good gift whether you're, you're a Christian or not. Everyone who experiences marriage is experiencing a good thing. Now, we know sin messes that up to one degree or another and makes it challenging. But that doesn't mean it's not a good thing. Just like children are a gift and a blessing from God, and yet sin can make those relationships difficult uh, in one way or another. Now, the question is, when Paul says, I wish everyone was like me, does he really mean I wish everyone was single like I am? I don't think so, because he's just said in verse 2, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Uh, He knows, it says in Genesis chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply. And so he's not denying um, that God has designed it for people to get married um, as the norm. And yet, he will go on to talk in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 26, about a present distress, which means there are going to be some difficult times coming for that church. Persecution likely is what he has in view. And so, in light of that, and in light of the fact that he'll go on to talk about in uh, verse 35, that when you have temporal concerns in a family, uh, it's easy to be distracted. And so, Paul is basically saying... It's my desire for you to have as little trouble as possible in light of the uh, the circumstances coming. And I want you to be undistracted in your devotion to Christ. In that sense, I want you to be more like me. And he's going to say, whatever you do in answering the what about marriage question, I pray that you would find contentment in Jesus, that he would be your source and your strength and that you would be able to say what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. 
I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. I think that's really behind uh, what he is saying there. Well, in what way is marriage a good gift or a blessing? Uh, If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see where it points to that in various ways. Um, There is one husband who was uh, comforting his wife at the uh, marriage of their daughter, and he said, Honey, don't think of it as losing a daughter. Think of it as gaining a bathroom. That's one way to think through, is this, is this marriage a good thing? Well, you think about it biblically, it's companionship, number one. If you read Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2, uh, God says it's not good to be alone, which means overall it wasn't good for just Adam to be all by himself. There's also the profit of help or cooperation, that we need other people, and, and a spouse can be a great help to us, a great blessing to us. So it's not only companionship, but it's help in various ways. There's obviously the physical part of it, the consummation part. That's what Paul is arguing at the beginning of the chapter here, that it's a means of avoiding sexual immorality and living in that way, uh, a way that pleases God in that area. And then the fruit of that is children. Children are a blessing and a gift from God. And so the blessings of marriage have to do with companionship, cooperation, consummation, and children. Well, not all people um, are intended to get married. And actually, some have been given the gift of celibacy. And that's what Paul is highlighting here. So in verse 7, when he says, uh, Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. One manner would be some have been gifted with spouses. Another manner would be some have been gifted with celibacy, which Paul would say, I'm one of the ones that has been gifted with celibacy. I think I mentioned the fact that there was a pastor who was talking to a young unmarried man, and they were talking about the question, what about marriage? And the young man said, well, I think maybe that I have the gift of celibacy. And the pastor asked the young man, uh, do you ever have a problem with pornography? And he said, well, yeah, I guess sometimes I do. And the pastor said, then you don't have the gift of celibacy. I would encourage you to pursue marriage. Why would he say something like that? It's all in light of what we should think about when we think of the gift of celibacy. What does that mean? What it means is it's the divine enablement to live joyfully and freely without marriage and without sexual intimacy. Joyfully and freely. And it's something. It's a gift from God. It's not just something you do out of self-control and self-will and determination. No, God actually gives you that gift. He enables you for whatever reason, whether it's for ministry or, or difficult circumstances, He gives you the gift of not needing to be married, not needing to um, uh, have that kind of physical intimacy and to be joyful, not to be uh, always wishing that you were married and always wanting to be married and and that kind of thing. Even Augustine, who was a great theologian of the past, he was saved and he uh, wanted to live a life of celibacy. And at one point, he imagined a conversation with continence, which is self-control or self-restraint in the area of of physical intimacy. And he imagined this conversation where continence says to him, you see those around you that are able to not give in to sexual temptation? Do you have any idea how they do that? They do that because God has given me to them. God has given continence to them, self-restraint in this area. Actually, the Lord Jesus talks about this whole thing in Matthew 19. You might recall he's answering a question from the Pharisees about um, marriage and divorce. And he says this at one point after the um, disciples say, you know, if, if there's very little reason to ever divorce your wife, maybe we just shouldn't get married. And Jesus says this to the what about marriage question. He says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, 
And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who are made themselves, excuse me, who, who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And so he says there are those who are in one sense or, or another kind of forced into celibacy. They were born that way. They can't have physical intimacy. Or they were made that way through men uh, in one form or another. Or they choose that life. But he says not all men can accept that. Only those to whom it has been given. Only those who have been given the gift of celibacy. You can see that illustrated in Luke 2 when it talks about Anna. Uh, she was evidently married for seven years and then lived until the age of 84 without a husband. She very likely was granted after that uh, marriage the grace to be simply devoted to God because it says she uh, served the Lord with prayers night and day. She wasn't distracted by wanting to be married again. So how do you know if you have the gift of celibacy? In verse 5, It talks about Satan tempting you because of your lack of self-control. If you're seriously tempted with sexual sin, then I would say you don't have the gift. Seriously tempted. Not that someone with the gift of celibacy could never be tempted, but seriously tempted. Um, If you're continually failing with regard to sexual sin, then then according to verse 5, uh, and, and chapter 6, verse 19, you probably don't have the gift. If you're seriously tempted, you're continually failing in this area. And if you're seriously distracted with wanting to be married, uh, wanting to have this kind of relationship, then uh, it, it's like verse 9. It says in verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The idea of burning with passion is having a strong desire, a desire that's a flame. To be married, to have this kind of physical intimacy, uh, that's not the gift of celibacy. That's an evidence that you don't have that gift. And so that's one of the problems that we find whenever anyone takes a vow of celibacy but does not have the gift of celibacy, you have a problem. And that's why in the Roman Catholic Church and other Situations where you have people taking a vow of celibacy that don't have the gift of celibacy, you set them up for failure. You set them up for, and other people up. Uh, you put them in a bad position. And so we have to be careful of that, Whether whatever church that might require something like that. Well, the third thing is some have the gift of unanswered prayer. And I'm going to have to explain what I mean by that. There was a a theologian named Howard Hendricks. He used to tell a story about when he was young and single and how uh, he would be in church and he'd have all these mothers, you know, looking at him and looking at him through the lens of, wow, maybe he could marry my daughter. That might be a good good connection. And uh, he had one mother come up to him and say, say, uh, Howard, I just want you to know that I'm praying that you will be my son-in-law one day. And every time he would tell this story, Howard would look at the crowd and say very seriously, there are reasons to thank God for unanswered prayer. (laughs) Well, the question that I want to raise is, what if you're not in the first two categories? What if you have not been given a spouse and you have not been given the gift of celibacy? Where are you? You're in the category of those with unanswered prayers. Because what is prayer? It's lifting up our desires to God. And so if you desire to get married, if you desire that relationship, there's a sense in which you're asking God, maybe formally or informally, to answer that prayer. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we to look at that? Um, there are some who would say that singleness in itself is a gift. And the Bible really challenges the idea that singleness in itself is a gift. Yes, celibacy is a gift. But to be single, according to the Bible, when you really want to be married, 
when you are like what it says in verse 9, burning with passion? The Bible doesn't call that a gift. The Bible calls that affliction. Now, what do we mean by affliction? Affliction is anything that's hard and difficult and is a type of suffering, a type of, uh, in a place of want, in a place of need. And the reality is God afflicts all of us, gives us all afflictions. So we're not just talking about, not talking about God's judgment on somebody. We're not talking about the idea that uh, God is being cruel in any sense. We're just talking about the fact that anytime you're in a place of need and things aren't the way you want them to be, it causes suffering of, of, a, of a sort, right? And therefore, it's a kind of affliction. And what does God tell us to do in those situations? He tells us to cry out to him for deliverance while thanking him for the good he's going to do through it. That's what he tells us to do, is to uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything to give thanks. So even in the midst of affliction, the, the Bible tells us that we're to rejoice in God, in his goodness, in all that he's doing good, even through our afflictions, but to pray without ceasing that he would deliver us from the affliction, but also deliver us in the affliction so that we can, as James said, you know, James talking about, honoring God in his suffering as he meets with different doctors and people, uh, that God would deliver us from our sin and enable us to honor him in our affliction. So you both pray to be rescued out of it and to be rescued in it, rescued from our sin and ourselves. And so I think it's helpful to realize that there is a distinction the Bible makes between the gift of celibacy and singleness because some people these days seem to be talking about you know, you just need to embrace your singleness as, as a gift. And it can imply that there's no hardship about there, that. There's no difficulty about that. You should, ought to be happy and thankful that you're single because, you know, you can do some things that other people can't do. Well, that might be true, but it's downplaying the difficulties of being single when you don't want to be single. And the Bible uh, highlights that in different ways. There's... um. There's someone who said this. He said, perhaps we should distinguish celibacy from singleness this way. Celibacy is voluntary singleness embraced for the sake of kingdom work by a responsible adult. This would exclude those who are voluntarily single, but whose reasons have more to do with the thought processes of crotchety bachelors than they do with the dedication of frontier mission church planters. What he means is sometimes people are single because uh, they're they're hard to live with, or they have high standards that they can't meet. There are reasons why they're still single that need to be dealt with. He says, as my father says, men turn into old maids sooner than women do. Uh, Some singleness is an affliction if it was not chosen freely and voluntarily for the sake of kingdom work, and the person concerned is of a marriageable age and would very much like to be married. And so Proverbs 30 highlights this, I think, what this man is trying to say. It says in verse 21, Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. So one of the things, one of the four things uh, under which the earth quakes, um, the earth cannot bear up, is when, when an unloved woman, or you could say an unloved man, uh, gets a spouse. Why would that be? It's an earth-shaking thing because finally a desire has been satisfied that had been there for a long time. That was a very difficult thing to go through. And so we have to realize that um, there are hard things in life that center around our desires. Think about um, a couple that really want to have a baby of their own, and they're waiting and waiting. That's a hard thing to go through. And that's why the Bible talks about the difficulty of barrenness. Um, It says in Proverbs 30 as well, there are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough, Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and a fire that never says enough. 
The barren womb is a picture of continual longing for a child that's not satisfied. And the question is, what do you do if you really want to be married? Um, Is it possible that God could withhold marriage from someone and the gift of celibacy temporarily and maybe even for a lifetime? Is it possible? And the answer is yes. The answer is, the reality is, we can have unfulfilled desires, whether it's a desire for a child or a desire for a spouse. And if God did that, he would do it because it's for his glory and for the good of the person and the good of other people. It wouldn't be out of cruelty. It wouldn't be out of uh, punishment or anything like that. It would be out of a desire for a greater good with greater purposes that we can't even fully understand. And so it's one of those things that I think we have to think about uh, the reality of that. There's a story that Elizabeth Elliot would tell about another missionary named Gladys Allward. Gladys Allward was a missionary to uh, China, and she went over there as a single uh, young lady uh, for seven years. She was fine, and then she uh, met up and began working with a couple in China, and she began to think, wow, I think I'd like to be married. And so she prayed that God would choose a man in England, call him, send him out to China, and have him propose. She prayed very specifically for God to do that. And she said, I believe God answers prayer. He called him, but he never came. So what is she saying? I wanted to be married. I prayed that it would happen. It never happened. And it wasn't because she was, you know, wasn't doing God's will or wasn't being obedient. She was serving the Lord faithfully in China. She prayed for a husband. Never came. And so you have to think about those things from what the Bible says because it's important. But there's another there's another lady. I'll just use one more illustration in light of the fact that we don't talk about these two things too often. But there was another um, lady who was a Canadian school teacher who also was a hymn writer. And she said this, single through no fault or choice of my own. Okay? Single through no fault or choice of my own. I am unable to express my sexuality and the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended. To seek to do this outside of marriage is, by the clear teaching of Scripture, to sin against God in my own nature. I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy, chaste not only in body but in mind and spirit. I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, his commands are his enablings. So those are two illustrations of godly ladies who wanted to be married but never were. The second one illustrates the fact that in light of that, she realized that she had to still follow God's word with regard to sexual activity. And she said, his commands are his enablings. I trusted that God would enable me to exercise self-control in this area because he had not provided a spouse for me. And that's the encouragement is that God will give us the grace we need in light of whatever lot in life he assigns to us. But I want to say something that there are statistics where uh, they note how many people over 65 get married every day in the U.S. And at one point they said 175 people every day in the U.S. got married who were 65 in age or older. And eight of those had never been married before. Which means... In a sense, as long as you're alive, there's the potential that you could get married one day if you desire to be married. And so no matter what your age is, if you desire to get married, if if you don't believe you have the the gift of celibacy, but you're praying to live like this Canadian school teacher, following God's word, but what should you do uh, in light of that ongoing desire that hasn't left you? 
And so I just want to mention some things that I think are helpful. Now, I've mentioned um, one older gentleman who used to tell older men in his church uh, who didn't seem to be moving in this area, pursuing a a spouse. He would tell them, "Uh, son, you need to ask her name and marry her. And what does he mean by that? He doesn't really mean that's the only thing you need to do. What he means is you need to make sure that there aren't things holding you back from marriage that are inappropriate or unnecessary. You need to really think through what does God say about pursuing a spouse? And are you making it more difficult than it needs to be? Which is a legitimate question for all of us. And so what I'd like to do is just highlight some principles from Scripture that I think will remind us, even as married people, what's important. And even if we would say, I'm not really interested in thinking about pursuing a marriage partner today, you can still think about your relationships because all of these principles, in one sense or another, uh, relate to relationships. Well, the first thing that I think the Bible would tell us if we were to ask the question, if I uh, don't have a spouse, if I don't have the gift of celibacy, Uh, what should I do in light of my desire to be married? And the first thing the Bible would say is, pursue Christ first. Rather than pursuing a a spouse first, pursue Christ first. It says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things refers to whatever you need. Seek first Christ and his kingdom. The reality is, It says in Romans chapter 1 that we're all idol worshipers, which means we're all inclined to look to people and things to help us and make us happy. But God designed us to find our happiness in God. Now, he does bring us joy through things and people in this life, but it's meant to point to him as the ultimate good, the supreme good. And if we try to find our happiness in people, Ultimately, uh, we will be be disappointed because we were created to be loved by an infinite God and satisfied by an infinite God. And finite people can never meet up to that standard. And God never intended for that to be the case. And so we have to refuse to make marriage and a spouse our God as to be something that we're looking to God for, for our help and our happiness. Another way to put that is, You have to get the vertical right to get the horizontal right. If you want your horizontal relationships, relationships with people in this world, including a spouse, to be right, you have to get the vertical right between you and God because God is the one who designed marriage. Well, the second thing is very closely related to it, and that is to pursue Christ's likeness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The question is, what is really my goal in life? Uh, So that's closely related to what is my ultimate priority. Is my priority pursuing Christ and his kingdom? If so, practically then it means my decision should be revolving around how do I please God? What does God want me to do? What does his word tell me to do? And in light of that, To pursue marriage, I need to be thinking about, am I a healthy, stable person spiritually? Am I in a good place spiritually? Or am I trying to unite with someone when I'm in a bad place spiritually? That's really not a very loving thing to do, right? Um, Another person has said, this means practically to be someone who's quick to apologize and quick to forgive. Because like Ruth Bell Graham said, a good marriage is the union of two forgivers two sinners marry and if you're not good at forgiving outside of marriage don't think you're going to be better at forgiving inside of marriage Uh, that's just going to translate into your marriage and so being someone who's quick to apologize and forgive is important Um, this point about pursuing Christ's likeness means it really means that a good marriage is not so much about what the other person is like as it is about what you're like. Because um, the reality is the gospel of grace 
tells us that because I've been loved by God graciously, I don't deserve to be loved by God, but he's loved me. He says, I want you to love the people in your life the same way. You love them in, in light of the fact that I've loved you, and you love them even, because, even if they don't love you back. Even if, you don't, even if they don't treat you well, you still treat them well. Even if they don't forgive you, you forgive them. All those things are so crucial to a good marriage. And so having Christ as our priority, seeking to be like Christ is so important. Another way to say that is seek to be the kind of person you would like to marry. Seek to be the kind of person you would really want to marry. Thirdly, pursue a vocation and serve other people. So obviously I'm talking at this point to single people who may want to get married. It says in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God creates Adam, he gives him a job, and then he gives him a wife. Which means God had given Adam a vocation. He had given him a job. He had given him uh, something to do. And the temptation when you're single and you really want to be married, and like I said, I was single for a long time, uh, and I know what it feels like. It, the, the temptation is to be all about the question, what about marriage? Rather than the question, how can I use my gifts and abilities and opportunities to serve people? How can I be a blessing to somebody else? How can I be a blessing to the people in my family? How can I be a blessing to the, blessing to the people in my church? How can I be a blessing to the people at my job or in my community? How can I serve other people? Because the reality is, if, if you don't have a mindset to serve before you get into marriage, what makes you think you're going to have a mindset to serve after you get into marriage? And that's what marriage is. It's about mutual service, mutual ministry, mutual caring for one another and taking care of each other. And so uh, some would encourage singles to get ready to ask and to be asked with regard to marriage, be other-oriented, and use your gifts and abilities to serve others. Um, I mean, you can think about it this way. If your ultimate goal is to get married, then your ultimate goal is actually self-centered. It's about satisfying your desire for marriage, or it can be. But if your ultimate goal is to honor God and love people and serve people, then you're already um, living in a way that's going to be a blessing to the person you marry. You're already thinking in a way that will actually help you in your married life. Well, the next thing is uh, pursue those who are doing the same thing that I've just talked about. Christ is their priority. Uh, They're seeking to live to please the Lord. They're uh, living to serve others. It says in 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, another way to say this is you can't get to Seattle if you get on a plane full of people going to New York. Okay, God uses people in our lives. And therefore, you want to uh, have close friendships with people that are going in the same direction that, that you should be going. And you want to marry someone, obviously, that is also going in that same direction. You want to uh, pursue all these things with those who call on the Lord, not from a, not that they're perfect, but pure in the sense that they are single-minded. They, they want to live to please the Lord. Another part of the wisdom that God gives us with regard to pursuing um, a spouse is to flee immorality and romance. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Part of the idea of having sex outside of marriage is that it's a way to either win the other person or it's a way to test compatibility and things like that, or it's just a way to satisfy your own desires for physical intimacy before they can legitimately be satisfied. And the Bible tells us not to do that. The Bible tells us that that's going to cause so many more problems than we can ever imagine. And yet, the Bible says that there's a sense in which we're getting the cart before the horse. 
But the, the good news is if we get the cart before the horse, which a lot of people have, there is forgiveness in Jesus. There is power in Jesus to be free from that. And, then, and you can still have a, a relationship in marriage that is uh, good and growing and a blessing. And so the Bible tells us that, uh, and this is one of the things that's really important, that when you think about what is really the message of the Bible, a lot of people think the message of the Bible is um, either God's angry at you and he's going to get you, or God wants you to earn your salvation. That's the way a lot of people look at what the Bible says. But the Bible really is saying that God is good. God really uh, wants you to be truly happy. But he knows that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he's provided a savior in the person of Jesus. And therefore we can be forgiven where we have sinned and we can find grace to live the way that God calls us to live. And that to me is an encouraging thing. It's kind of like, um, as I've said many times before, um, you know, when your kids are young, you'll tell them things like, don't play with razor blades. And the child might think you're being mean, but you're protecting them. You're pursuing their good. And even though it feels differently for us, sex outside of marriage is like playing with razor blades from God's perspective. And he wants to free us from it, and he wants us to have the blessing of what he can provide in marriage. And yet it's key that we find forgiveness in Christ, and we find power through Christ for that. Well, let me just move on to say, in all of this, we're we're pursuing a mate in the way that God says we're supposed to pursue a mate. We're not just to do it the way it feels like the right way to do it, or just the way society tells us to do it. We're to do it in the way that God calls us to do it. And we're to ask him for what only he can provide. We're to ask him to meet our need in this area. So in Matthew 7, it says, if you, th- if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so what do you do if you're single, you want to be married, you're asking for uh, a spouse that God hasn't provided? You thank God that he hasn't provided yet, and you keep on asking. The Bible says, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Trust God for his timing. Trust God to provide as he sees fit. And take the pressure off yourself. Um, God is able to give us what we need when we need it. I mean, my wife was in California. I was in Louisiana. And God brought us together. And so God knows how to answer our prayers and his timing. I wish it would have happened a lot sooner than it did from my perspective, but God's timing is perfect. God, timing, God, God knows what is best for us. Now, another principle is do what is wise and lawful to pursue marriage. I say this because there are things like e-harmony, and um, the question is, are those kinds of approaches okay? And I say, sure, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's Lawful. There's nothing unlawful about that. Um, There's a story about a guy who lived in northern Siberia, and he was a young guy. He was single, and he didn't know much about the people there, but every night these young ladies would come and throw frozen lice at his door. And he found out that that is the way in their culture that they let young men know that they were single and they were available for marriage. Frozen lice. Now, in our culture, that wouldn't go over very well. But the question is, what are legitimate means in our culture to pursue marriage? Nothing wrong with things like e-harmony. Nothing wrong with things like that. Um, Notice it says in Proverbs 18, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. The idea of find implies looking. It doesn't say he who gets a wife dropped in his lap it's something good dropped in his lap. It says finds, which implies I'm kind of looking around. I'm kind of um, trying to find out if there is someone that I could marry. And so it doesn't hurt to go fishing where the fish are. Okay? As long as you have the other priorities in view. 
Now, some people are so intent on getting married, they jettison all the other priorities, and they just make that the thing, and they're just on the hunt. you got to have the other principles in view. But with those other principles in view, you can pray and you can go where the fish are, so to speak. It's not wrong to do what you can to find a godly spouse. Um, and this brings us to the next point. Imply, excuse me, employ wise counselors. Um, is there anything wrong with matchmaking? Jan and I's relationship is the result of matchmaking. There's nothing inherently wrong with matchmaking. Um, Sometimes uh, we all need help, and sometimes other people can help us. They can give us honest input. They can give us good feedback. They can even help us in relationships. And your parents can provide that sometimes. Other older people in the congregation or other people, older, wiser people that you might know in your life can help you as you do that. Uh, Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Uh, and so uh, that applies to marriage as well as any other thing. Uh, we can ask people uh, what might be helpful, what might be hindering us as we seek to uh, fulfill that desire. Another thing is to be careful of your list of requirements for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Um, Proverbs 31 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There's no doubt that God is behind beautiful women and and handsome men, and that's a blessing. Uh, There's no, no doubt that God is behind those who have really good personalities that are outgoing and fun to be with and those kinds of things. So there's nothing wrong with those at all. But... The the, uh, writer there is saying the more important thing is not how people look, it's not uh, how fun they are to be with, it's whether or not they fear God. Now, fear God doesn't mean they're afraid of God. It means they reverence God. They trust God. They have a love for God. Why is that important? Because if they don't, then they're going to be more focused on themselves and to be more focused on themselves, if you've got two people in a marriage that are very much focused on themselves, that is certainly the recipe for disaster, for conflict. But if both people are focused on God and saying, what does God want me to do to love my wife? What does God want me to do to love my husband? Then you have much more grace to have a good marriage. And so that's why it could say something like that. In Psalm 4, it says something similar with regard to men, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So men should be looking for women who can be respectful helpers in light of all that the Bible says. Women should be looking for men who can be servant leaders. Um, A wife should be able to respect the person she's married and seek to bless him and support him in his endeavors The husband should be willing to lay down his life for his wife and to serve her even as he leads her. And that dynamic is meant to be a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so men shouldn't be going around looking for Barbies and women shouldn't be going around looking for Superman. We should have more biblical, reasonable expectations uh, with regard to that matter. And I think that's what... uh, a prior quote was talking about when it was talking about crotchety old uh, you know, bachelors who are looking for things that uh, can't satisfy their expectations in various ways and therefore hinder the whole process. Well, another principle is to consider practical matters that may influence timing. It says in Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Now, to nourish and to cherish means literally to feed and keep warm. Now, in the context, it means a lot more than just the practical side of making sure your wife has enough to eat and has enough clothes to wear. But it at least means that. Um, And so what does that mean practically? Well, that means if you're not able to provide basic necessities, 
then you're not really ready to get married. If you can't feed your wife and clothe your wife appropriately, then you need to maybe wait on that. Um, you need to be reasonably and financially sound. And you need to be well, ready to welcome children. Because the reality is, no matter how couples may try to wait to have children, uh, sometimes uh, you just have children, regardless of how long you might want to wait. So those are very practical issues with regard to, am I ready practically to get married? And uh, can I take on a wife and uh, get married to a husband? And can do we have the resources practically? Um, and are we ready if the Lord gives us children and, and gives us children sooner than we maybe we had planned? Those are just very practical things to think about. Um, as someone has said, uh, it's nice to think uh, we'll just live on love. Uh, it's not very practical and it's not very wise to say, ah, but you can't really live on love. And the loving thing isn't to say I can live on love. The loving thing is to say, I want to make sure your needs are met. And so I want to make sure we're prepared uh, for when we get married. Well, there's a couple things and wrap this up. Um, wait on God. In Psalm 37, it says, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will it will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Um, we need to resist the temptation to compromise. Um, you may have even heard uh, people who are willing to lower their standards because they're, they're getting older and they just want to get married. Well, there's a sense in which maybe you should if you have unreasonable expectations. But if you're lowering, lowering those standards below what God says ought to be the things that you're looking for in a spouse then you're compromising yourself because you're not waiting on God. And we need to wait on God, trust him, ask him for grace to remain single until he provides. And then finally, trust God for what you need and leave the matter to him, which brings us back to Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God knows what is truly good for each of us with regard to marriage, and he will give us what we need when we need it. So anyway, the reality is those principles apply to all kinds of relationships. Um, But if you're single and wanting to be married, I would encourage you to think about your pursuit of marriage in light of those biblical principles. But even more than that are other questions. The question, what about marriage is important, but what about my guilt before a holy God is a much more important question. What am I going to do about that guilt? And Jesus came, lived and died, that we might be forgiven. The question, what about my good? What is my supreme good? What was my ultimate goal in life? And God says, I made you to find your joy in me. Make me your ultimate good. And the question, what about your goal? What is your goal in life? Is it to satisfy your desires or to love people like God calls us to love people. That's the path of true joy. That's the path of true peace. And all those questions lead to the most important question of all. What about Jesus? What do we really think about Jesus? What do we think about who he is, what he did, and how it applies to us? And that leads us to uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, if you've repented of your sins, you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we would encourage you to partake with us of the Lord's Supper. If you haven't, we'd encourage you to trust in Jesus and to know that he is an able and willing Savior for you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We uh, pray that as we've talked about a lot of things, touched on a lot of different things. It's very easy maybe for us to check in and out in light of that. But I pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to really think about what your your, your word says about relationships in general as well as marriage and the pursuit of marriage. And I pray, Father, that we would believe that you're good, that we believe that you tell us how to truly pursue what will satisfy us and what will make for a really good marriage and that we would know that wherever we have sinned and fallen short of your glory 
wherever we have failed to live up to your standard, there is forgiveness in Jesus and there is power in Jesus to live differently. Help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Help us to know and believe the love which you have for us and the grace that is available to us in Jesus. Please grant that to each and every one of us. And for those of us who are trusting you, we pray that you would meet us now as we honor you Uh, and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And for those who have not yet entrusted themselves to you, I pray that you grant them grace to do that even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.